Reflections on Herman Melville's Moby Dick by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 In light of the fact that Melville was in his early 30s when he wrote Moby Dick, I'd like to begin by uh, uh, publicly acknowledging my my belief in the divine inspiration of literature because I can't imagine how else this book could have been written by somebody in his early 30s. The only other alternative to a theory of divine inspiration is uh, is some version of a uh, of the cult of personality, which I find less uh, agreeable. But I think the uh, the text is is an astonishing and uh, and uh, surviving document of that deals with one of the ongoing perennial mysteries of life. What I'd like to do this morning uh, is uh, is review the material, but in the course of reviewing it, pause twice, once now and once in a few minutes, uh, to engage in one of these little meditations. Uh, and I'll just remind you that these meditations uh, are a different little genre uh, in terms of what we do, namely that in the course of meditation I, can, I say or imply things without having to back them up, uh, which is I do that otherwise too, but uh, particularly in the meditation. Well, anyway, uh, Carl Jung said the psyche is at odds with itself. And uh, if we wanted, if we got curious about how it is that the psyche is at odds with itself and wanted to explore that a little further, where would we go? Well, we could go just about anywhere, really. Uh, but our recently uh, named American Poet Laureate, Richard Wilbur, has these lines. It is by words and a defeat of words down sudden vistas of the vain attempt that for a flying moment one may see by what cross-purposes the world is dreamt. So I was imagining this psyche at odds with itself or the world dreamt at cross-purposes as having something to do with the fact that we long to be a self, little suspecting that that self, if it ever sifts down to its depths, will discover there a more potent longing for selflessness. And that the mystery of selfhood is at the heart of the mystery of the world, and it is the mystery of selfhood that gives the mystery of the world its mysteriousness. Modern literary critic Harriet Davidson wrote this, Increasingly, the demystifying philosophers have turned their attention to the place where self and world are most indistinguishable, language. Well, the reason I wanted to preface with that thing about being at odds and words is because we have about 100 pages in the text to cover, and I want to dwell for an a inordinately long time on the first and fourth words of those hundred pages. The first word is... Who can tell me what the first word is? No. Loomings. Loomings. The name of the first chapter is Loomings. And it tells ever so much about what this text is going to try to do. There are two implications of loomings that I'll call your attention to, both straight out of the dictionary. The first is a looming is a mirage in which images of objects below the horizon appear in distorted form. A mirage in which images of objects below the horizon appear in a distorted form. I've always been fascinated by this thing that I, I've called uh, triangulation. Triangulation being, uh, I guess, the, the modern image for it would be the uh, satellite dishes that you're the satellite uh, transmissions that bounce off the satellites, and therefore uh, overcome the curvature of the Earth to make communication that couldn't happen on a straight line. And I think psychologically there is this. I think symbols provide us the wherewithal to triangulate on something we cannot have direct access to. And so the very uh, first implication of looming is that. 
gives us a chance to see something below the horizon, though we then have to uh, account for the fact that there's been some distortion in the, uh, in the act of triangulating it. So then we still have some work to do with it. It's not as though it happens automatically. There's still some work. A mirage in which images of objects below the horizon appear in distorted form, and they have to be undistorted. The second dictionary definition of looming is the action or process of mounting the warp on the loom. To add the other dimension to the, to the loom. The uh, dictionary definition of loom is this. A frame or machine for interlacing at right angles two or more sets of threads or yarns to form a cloth. Interlacing at right angles two or more yarns to make a whole cloth. That's what this book is all about. This book is concerned with what I'm calling triangulation, trying to see that mystery that's always receding over the horizon, trying to stay in touch with it by use of symbolism. Which is the only way we can get at it, because it's always going right up. It's always disappearing over the horizon. And secondly, it is trying to weave together the warp and the woof after perhaps a long time where they have been separated. Or it, it, a, a particular mindset tries to separate them out to keep things tidier than they would be. In this book, God is referred to as a weaver. We'll talk about that more next week. Who is insistent that both the warp and the woof be included in the cloth. And there's an, a lot of interest in weaving and braiding and splicing and interminable references to ropes and cords and hemps and strands and harpoons line, harpoon lines and all kinds of entanglements which are part of the great weaving. Okay, well, that's the first word. Second word is call, third word is me, and fourth word is Ishmael. Let's talk about that one for a while. Ishmael. First, well, no, well, not quite so fast. Let's talk about the second one. Call me Ishmael. He does not say my name is Ishmael. He says call me Ishmael. He remains anonymous. Uh, what we need to know about him is, convey, is conveyed by Ishmael. You know, I had, I've had this cartoon in my file someplace where it shows somebody at a writing desk and the floor is littered with these sheets of paper that say, call me Bill, call me David, call me John. <laughs> and there really is something to that because it, when, when Melville, whatever, however, he came to, however he came to have Ishmael be his major character, uh, that really opened up the, uh, the great opportunity for him because uh, Ishmael is, a, is well, as I'll speak about in just a minute, is a perfect combination of what he needs. But like Dante, Ishmael is both the one who experienced the story, Ishmael the sailor, and the one who is telling it, Ishmael the narrator. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish which is which, as it was with Dante the pilgrim and the poet. But the story of Ishmael in the Bible is this. Abraham, you, you know this, but I'll just uh, review it. Abraham, his wife Sarah, who could not have a child, Sarah had an Egyptian uh, slave whose name was Hagar. And Hagar and uh, Sarah, when she found that she could not bear a child, suggested that Abraham sleep with Hagar and therefore have a descendant. And uh, he did so after which Hagar started to be kind of uppity as far as Sarah was concerned. And so Sarah suggested that uh, Hagar be sent away. And uh, Abraham said, okay. And so they sent her away. But an angel appeared to her on the way, and the angel said this, Now you have conceived, and you will bear a son, and you shall name him Ishmael. For Yahweh has heard your cries of distress. A wild ass of a man he will be against every man, and every man against him setting himself to defy all his brother. So she goes back and has Ishmael. And then, well, then through divine intervention, uh, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And then Sarah looks out and sees Isaac and Ishmael playing. And she, like any mother, is concerned about the uh, influences here. Uh, so she suggests 
to Abraham again that, that uh, Hagar and Ishmael be sent away and Abraham consults God on the subject and God agrees and so they're sent away. And uh, and then it, the story goes on to indicate that Ishmael fathers the northern Arabian tribes, the Ishmaelite tribes, or the Midianite tribes. There are 12 of these tribes with 12 chieftains, a uh, replica of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they are the, they have, they are in subsequent uh, Israelite history the uh, perennial enemies of the, of the Israelites. And then uh, the story of Ishmael pretty much concludes with the number of years Ishmael lived was 137. Then he breathed his last, died, and was gathered to his people. Doesn't exactly say whose people are, uh, but there is in this story an attempt to gather him back into the main story. Uh, he represents all who have been marginalized by the main story and uh, who have lived that exiled or alienated life. And uh, there is a possibility as the story ends that he might be gathered back into his people. And this would involve a kind of weaving, uh, a, a, an addition of, the, of a warp to the, to the tapestry that has been lacking or left aside. Melville writes, as we said last week, with a condor's quill, and he lays the heavenly diamond against a gloomy background. These are indications of how he's operating with his subject matter. And the choice of Ishmael is perfect because with Ishmael as his main character, he can both reject and embrace the tradition. Ishmael is the personification of both the rejection and adoption of the tradition because he is a, he is a, a character in the tradition. The American poet James Wright once said that his beloved wife, Annie, gave him the strength to come to terms with things he loved and hated at the same time. And I think Ishmael provides that service for Melville. It gives him the opportunity to come to grips with things he loves and hates at the same time. Ishmael has the blood of Abraham and the blood of an Egyptian slave in him. And uh, those are the two primordial blood types, if I can put it that way. Uh, Abraham, the one who hears God and who fathers the great chosen people, and the Egyptian slaves and enslavers who are left out of that and who repress that when they can and who are antithetical to that. So Ishmael is an uncanny blend of alienation from and affiliation with the tradition. And he is, you might say, also a, a kind of a paradigmatic kind of consciousness, the kind of consciousness that in our day at least might legitimately hope to revivify the tradition, namely one that has these ambivalent relationships to it. Well, what I'd like to suggest uh, in these first chapters is that the first thing we get a picture of is exile, alienation, and a kind of spiritual and psychological and cultural rigor mortis. Things have come to a dead end. And so the rest of that first or several sentences into that first paragraph, call me Ishmael, some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and, and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knock, knocking people's hats off, then I count it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. So, depression... Aggression, 
uh, nihilism in a way, deadness. He says, I never go as a passenger or as a privileged member of the crew, a commodore, a captain, or a cook. He always goes as a simple sailor. It's unpleasant enough, particularly when be, your immediately preceding occupation was as a schoolmaster where you got to lord it over everybody. And then you get on ship as a simple sailor and you get bossed around. He says that's it's quite a transition, this going from being the bossy one to being the one bossed. And then he says, what of it if some old hunks of a sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks? What does that indignity amount to, weighed, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament? Who ain't a slave? Tell me that. The universal thump is passed around and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Now that is his picture of community at the, as, the, uh, as the story begins. This is steep. By the way, Melville regarded the Sermon on the Mount as the, as the supreme statement of things. So uh, however cranky he gets about uh, Christian conventionality, uh, he, his sense of things isn't, is bedrocked in the Sermon on the Mount. But this is a, uh, what you might call a minimalist uh, appreciation of community. The universal thump is passed around and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. Uh, it's, it's not exactly a visionary sense of our human community, but it's not, but it's not uh, vicious either. The second chapter, entitled The Carpet Bag, I think of it as a search for, the, for an Ishmaelite church. He's looking around New Bedford for a place to stay until he can get to Nantucket and sail. And he's wandering around and he rejects a number of possibilities. Uh, he peeks into the windows of the, cro of the crossed harpoons and the swordfish inn and he finds them both too expensive and jolly for him. And then he looks, uh, he stumbles into a, uh, a Negro church, uh, stumbles over the ash box on the porch of the Negro church uh, and finds this uh, hell and damnation uh, atmosphere going on in there and he decides that's uh, too gloomy and so he keeps looking around it, it occurs to me that it is uh, you, you'll notice and th this is not fanciful as, uh, as it may seem the crossed harpoons uh, you get the image of the cross but it is affiliated with the commercial enterprise it's too cozily affiliated to the commercial enterprise. So what you get is something that's too expensive and jolly to be to provide the kind of meaning that uh, he is unconsciously seeking. Likewise with the sword fish in, the fish is the symbol of Christ. The sword fish in would be a situation in which the in which the uh, compromise is not so much with the commercial but perhaps with some historical uh, movement or another, some cause. Uh, and in any case, they don't speak to his condition. And, and this, this Negro church, which he calls the trap, uh, is too uh, is too intimately uh, concerned with the with its own uh, sinfulness, and the, so he he stumbles over the ash box on the porch. And these don't speak to his condition. So he finds a place called the Spouter Inn, and uh, that's the place he chooses to go to. Now we learn. Uh, from the sign that Spouter Inn is run by Peter Coffin. Now, this place is not so glib or, or jolly that its proprietor's last name isn't Coffin, but it is not so gloomy that its proprietor's first name isn't Peter. And therein lies, you see, the warp and the woof already. Peter Coffin, perfect for an Ishmaelite, for, the, for, for somebody to, uh, the landlord of the Ishmaelite uh, community. Peter Coffin. And it's the spouter in. There's, uh, the, spout, the whale spout is a part of the mystery symbolism of this book. Two things can be said about it, I think, apropos to his choice here of the spouter in. First of all, the spout is, is, uh, symbol, is the symbol of doubts. I talked about that last week, quoting from a, a text on the, fount, the chapter on the fountain later in the book. 
where he likens the spout of the whale to doubts. And also he says of the spout that the whale breathes one-seventh of his time, and then he says, which means he breathes a Sunday of his time. So the spouting is something that is associated with the Sunday and also associated with doubt. So it has both of those qualities. And it's an Ishmaelite in the sense that it's a Sunday activity, but it is also doubts. has both those qualities. So he stands on the on the threshold to the uh, spouter in and uh, says this. The spouter in stood on a sharp, bleak corner where that tempestuous wind, Euryclidon, kept up a worse howling than ever it did about poor Paul's tossed craft. Euryclidon, as far as I know, is the, only, the word's only used here and in the Acts of the Apostles. It was a uh, a wind that almost wrecked a ship that St. Paul was on. And uh, so we're the text immediately alerts us to the fact that we're in the context of a churchy question here. A wind that blows the ship ashore and wrecks it, or almost wrecks it. Eurycliden, nevertheless, is a mighty pleasant zephyr to anyone indoors with his feet on the hob quietly toasting for bed. Implication being that there's some concern that once you go inside, you stop feeling that kind of wind. In judging of that tempestuous wind called Eurycliden, says an old writer of whose works I possess the only copy extant, it maketh a marvelous difference whether thou lookest out at it from the glass window where the frost is all on the outside or whether thou observest it from that sashless window where the frost is on both sides and of which the white death is the only glazer. True enough, thought I, as, that, as this passage occurred to my mind, O oh, black letter, thou reasonest well. Yes, these eyes are windows, and this body of mine is the house. Stop there just for a second glazed on both sides, ice and frost on both sides. Remember Canto 34 of the Inferno? The people in the pit of hell, frozen, and the focus of their, of their punishment is that their eyes are frozen, their tears are frozen. Okay, so right, we, we begin with images of being in the pit of hell, and things are frozen and dead. We had images of funerals. And then he says, yes, these eyes are windows and this body of mine is a house. What a pity they didn't stop up the chinks and the crannies, though, and thrust in a little lint here and there. But it's too late to make any improvements now. The universe is finished. The copstone is on and the chips were carted off a million years ago. No possibility of improvement. It's too late to make improvements now. The universe is finished. And then there's one more little reference to, a biblical reference, to Lazarus and the rich man. Legendary, uh, legendary name of the rich man is Dives. And in the Lazarus story, uh, Lazarus begs at the rich man's gate and uh, is refused uh, any comfort. And uh, he dies and goes to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man dies and goes into the tortures of hell and uh, begs Abraham that Lazarus come and wet his finger and, and uh, relieve his thirst. And he's told he can't do that and so on and so on. But you have to remember, Ishmael's standing on a, on a corner where Eurycliden is blowing and he's freezing. And he says Lazarus is, might have preferred the fiery pit if he had been in a place like this. And he says, Yet Dives himself, he too lives like a czar in an ice palace made of frozen size. I, I told you Melville was reading Carey's translation of the Inferno when he was writing this book. Uh, there's another picture of hell. This book starts in hell. See, this is a kind of purgatorio. Dives himself... He too lives like a czar in an ice palace made of frozen scythes, and being a president of a temperance society, he only drinks the tepid tears of orphans. 
Boy, does that say a mouthful. But no more of this blubbering now. We're going a-whaling. There's plenty of that yet to come. Let us scrape the ice from our frosted feet and see what sort of place this spouter may be. The beginning is he decides to go in anyway. And he scrapes the ice from his frosted feet. That's the beginning. That's the first step to get to, to, to get out of that frozen hell. He scrapes the ice and crosses the threshold. And, and as soon as he is inside, he is faced with the need to perform an interpretation. Now, I'm going to read this passage to you, but uh, I want you to notice how quickly it changes from the impersonal one to the specific you, as though Ishmael Perrin Melville is now talking to the reader about the reader's experience, as well as what's happening in this story. The spouter spouter end reminds one of the bulwarks of some condemned old craft. This is really a picture of the culture. On one side hung a very large oil painting so thoroughly besmoked and every way defaced that in the unequal cross-lights by which you viewed it, it was only by diligent study and a series of systematic visits to it and careful inquiry of, of the neighbors that you could anyway arrive at an understanding of its purpose. Such unaccountable masses of shades and shadows that at first you almost thought some ambitious young artist, Melville was 32, in the time of the New England hags had endeavored to delineate chaos bewitched. Well, I think it's a commentary on the central image of, uh, of the culture, but I think it's also a commentary on this text. But what most puzzled and confounded you was a long-limbered, portentous black mass of something hovering in the center of the picture over three blue, dim, perpendicular lines floating in a nameless yeast. A boggy, soggy, squitchy picture, truly, enough to drive a nervous man distracted. Yet was there a sort of indefinite, half-attained, unimaginable solemnity about it that fairly froze you to it till you involuntarily took an oath with yourself to find out what that marvelous painting meant. Ever and anon, a bright but, alas, deceptive idea would dart you through. But at last, all these fancies yield to that one portentous something in the picture's midst. That, once found out, and all else were plain. Well, it's a commentary on on the text of Moby Dick, which is the, the white whale is this inscrutable mystery at the heart of the text. But it's also a commentary, I think, on the culture. The Spouter Inn is a, uh, provides a cultural a panorama, a kind of a triptych, which we'll talk about in a minute. But before we get in, I, w- I want to pause before we get to what what the painting is and just muse on the fact that he has just said that the universe is finished and that's, and, uh, you know, that's it. And now there's a hint that there's something unfinished, namely this inscrutable painting has has engaged him in the act of trying to interpret it. Only when it is finished can the universe be defined. The word defined means finished. So if it is finished, you can define it. If it is unfinished, you cannot define it. It cannot be defined. It will not stand still for definition. And if it will not stand still for definition, then you have to constantly, constantly be engaged in an interpretive work with regard to it. It must be interpreted over and over and over again. So what I'd like to suggest is something we might call an an interpretive cosmos or or a hermeneutic cosmos. And what I want to do is do a little, kind of a little survey on some of these terms that we use so often here and elsewhere too so that we might think of interpretation in a different way, perhaps. Interpretation is not a way of achieving empirical certainty. It's an alternative to empirical certainty. It's a different way of life. 
Interpretation is a way of achieving experiential meaning and that there is an eternal war between certainty and meaning. And it is really meaning that we're after. But sometimes we're not ter terribly clear about that and we think what we're after is certainty. And by making that slight miscalculation, we screw the whole enterprise up. Religiously speaking, meaning is the impact of the mystery of life on, on the imagination in such a way that one feels either God's presence or God's absence. The experience of meaning involves an interpretation. Even though the deeper the experience, the more likely it is that the interpretation takes place simultaneously rather than later and in the heart rather than in the head. But it is still an interpretation. The spiritual wherewithal that makes this approach to the meaningful possible is not so much a pre-existing assumption or a mental paradigm, but a state of consciousness that has been brought into being by repeated exposure to symbols. Ananda Kumaraswamy has this little image, which is strange here, I, I, I admit. He talks about the aesthetic shock of something that is symbolically potent uh, and that awakens consciousness, consciousness at some depth. And he says it's like the slightest touch of a whip to the flanks of a good horse. The touch of that whip carries meaning. And he says the better the horse, the lighter the touch. Uh, so that the consciousness that has been brought into being by repeated exposures to symbols might be one that could be put in touch with the meaningful cosmos with the lightest of uh, exposures. A symbol is an object or event so suffused with meaningfulness of a strange and fascinating kind that all the sundry mental detergents applied to it forever failed to deplete it of any of its rich and elusive caginess. And those who refuse to inhabit a hermeneutic cosmos where self and world avail themselves like this of each other, those who want to tell a story to end all stories and who want to get the bothersome business of interpretation over and done with so things can settle down and life can be tidied up again are the reductionists. Now, the Eskimo has a dozen names for snow and if we live in a hermeneutic cosmos, we will have to learn some distinctions. And there are probably a number. I'd like to start out with just one elementary one. Two kinds of interpretations. One I will call a grand interpretation. A grand interpretation is made instantaneously in the heart without the least separation occurring between the symbol and its meaning. An ordinary interpretation, no pejorative is meant here, is one that's made over time in the head in which a necessary separation occurs, however slight, between the symbol and its meaning. And both are very valuable. Uh, sometimes they both happen at the same time. But they're two different kinds of interpretation. Sometimes when that grand interpretation th happens, we, we don't realize that an interpretation has taken place because it is not terribly cerebral. So that we can understand, so that when I say interpretation or hermeneutics, uh, I don't want to have us think that this always has to do with some kind of mental operation. But it is, it's the impact of something highly elusive and symbolic on, a, on our consciousness. Well, the reason I wanted to go into that little excursion is because this oil painting is still there before us and it is inscrutable and it has all these dark shadows and shades and all, he, he scraped the ice off his feet and stepped into the spouter in and he's faced with this problem. Not a problem, mystery. And he looks at it and he realizes he commits himself to it. Did you notice that about the text? He says what happens with this thing is that you can't make heads or tails out of it. But he says, yet there was a sort of indefinite, half-attained, unimaginable solemnity about it that fairly froze you to it till you involuntarily took an oath with yourself to find out what that marvelous painting meant. So he commits himself to it in that way. 
And what he finds out is, after careful scrutiny, walking up to it, backing away from it, coming at it from different angles, is that it's a Cape Horner in a hurricane, a ship going around Cape Horn in a hurricane. And in the middle is an exasperated whale proposing to spring clean over the craft is in the enormous act of impaling himself on the three mastheads. Now that is available for a grand interpretation. An exasperated whale proposing to spring clean over the craft is in the enormous act of impaling himself upon the three masses. There are so many contradictions in this little passage. An exasperated whale, other options having failed, proposing to spring clean over the craft is in the enormous act as though it's not an accident. It's not a mishap. It's an enormous act of impaling himself on the three mastheads. I'll, this and a, and a couple of other images we're going to look at today, I will try my best to restrain comment because they... They do a lot better on their own than when you try to add something to them. But I'll add this one thing to this one. And that is in, in Melville, in Moby Dick, quite often the three mastheads conjure the image of the silhouette of Calvary. You see what I'm saying? So now you add that little implication there and then you get the exasperated whale. Now, if we don't want to engage in an inter if we if an interpretive universe seems too exhausting, and we'd rather have one that's finished, uh, or we'd rather have, in other words, we don't want to, we're not up to the to the daily need to enter into the mystery. That we have two other it's a triptych. There are two other options in the spouter end. The opposite wall of this entry was hung all over with a heathenish array of monstrous clubs and spears. One was sickle shaped. You shuddered as you gazed. So one is some kind of aggression, some version of aggression that will just take your mind off the mystery and give you some immediate purpose. And the other one is, projecting from the further angle of the room stands a dark-looking den, a bar, the bar, a rude attempt at a right whale's head. Be that as it may, there stands the vast arched bone of a whale's jaw, so wide a coach might almost drive beneath it. Within are shabby shelves ranged round with old decanters, bottles, flask, and in those jaws of swift destruction, like another cursed Jonah, by which name indeed they called him, bustles a little withered old man who for their money dearly sells the sailors deliriums and death. Delusion. Delusion. If one doesn't want to enter into the mysteries, there are these other options. So that's the spouter in, and guess what? There's no room in the end. There's no room in the end. And this is New Bedford. This New Bedford. So there must be a room in the end. Well, there's a bed in the end that's occupied, but Ishmael can share it. And it's a new bed. And there's some reference to this harpooner that he might share this bed with. And, of course, the harpooner is out selling his head. And Ishmael says, uh, wait a minute, he's, uh, what'd you say? <laughs> well, he's out selling his head. Oh. It's a shrunken head. He's a cannibal. And he's trying to get it sold before midnight because it'll be Sunday at midnight. You don't want to go around New Bedford selling heads on Sunday. Um... Uh, but the landlord, Peter Coffin, let's not forget Peter Coffin, he takes him up to the bed. He said, it's a nice bed. Sal and me slept in that air bed the night we were spliced. It's a wedding bed. It's a marriage bed. And this is new Bedford. And uh, Queequeg comes in after Ishmael goes to bed. 
And Queequeg uh, puts his idol up, builds a little, fixes the shrine, uh, starts a sacrificial fire, does uh, some little uh, rituals to his to his idol. And uh, Ishmael says, I confess I was now as much afraid of him as if he were the devil himself. And Queequeg starts to get in bed. He doesn't know Ishmael's there. And suddenly he tells, feels this other character there. And he says, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Ishmael says, Landlord, for God's sake, Peter Coffin, Landlord, watch Coffin, angels, save me. It's all funny, but I think that is the breakthrough. We've talked about that here before. The need to be able to say, help me. Help me. Landlord. For God's sake, Peter Coffin, landlord, watch, Coffin, angels, save me. <laughs> and the landlord comes in and says, that's okay. And he, you know, makes peace between the two. And uh, Ishmael says, I turned in and never slept better in my life. And chapter four is entitled Counter Pain. Counter pain. Counter pain is a quilt, much like Queequeg, but it is also counter pain. It is the beginning of the move into a new life. It is the beginning of the resuscitation of Ishmael and the re-adopting of Ishmael into the main story. The counter pain. Upon waking next morning about daylight, I found Queequeg's arm thrown over me in the most loving and affectionate manner. You had almost thought I had been his wife. Another nice thing about Ishmael is it sounds like Ismail. Ismail, and now he has, now he's wife. Queequeg was hugging me, he said. I tried to move it. Okay, we've got wife already. I tried to move his his arm, unlock his bridegroom clasp, yet sleeping as he was, he still hugged me tightly as though naught but death should part us twain. Taken right out of the marriage ceremony. The marriage bed. And Queequeg and Ishmael are being married. Well, let me go on about the marriage ceremony. First of all, in case we get any kind of funny business about homosexuality here, there is a little tiny reference to the fact that Ishmael put his tomahawk pipe between them. Uh, he, he, Ishmael has this wonderful tomahawk pipe, which is both what he uses to kill his enemies with and what he uses to... I mean, Queequeg, I'm sorry. Queequeg has his tomahawk pipe. He, he uses it to kill his enemies and also to make peace. But he puts it between the, in the sense of that that motif in uh, Tristan and Isolde and other places where the to, to lay the sword between is to uh, is is to maintain the chasteness of the uh, of the relationships. So there's a little hint here, I think Melville's dropping it. It's at a deeper level than than literal. And then he says of Queequeg, he is a creature in the transition state, neither caterpillar nor butterfly. His education was not complete. He was an undergraduate. He, in other words, he's still in process. The universe isn't finished. He's somebody who is still curious, interested, alive. And Ishmael, the so-called civilized person, has become dead until he meets Queequeg. There is an interlude which I... I think of really as an interlude. I want to treat it as an interlude in the church, the, the three chapters, chapel, pulpit, and sermon, because we leave the spouter in with Ishmael and Queequeg, and we go to the, to the chapel, and then we come back to spouter in. So I think it's inserted here as a way, as a juxtaposition, so that we can see both of these things more clearly. In the chapel... Here's what we find. Each silent worshiper seemed purposely sitting apart from the other. 
as if each silent grief were insular and incommunicable. The chaplain had not yet arrived, and there these silent islands of men and women sat steadfastly eyeing several marble tablets with black border. Notice the isolation and silence, and they're all staring at these cenotaphs, these which are reproduced in the text, these, uh, these memorials to people who have died at sea. And he says, What despair in those immovable inscriptions! What deadly voids and unbidden infidelities in the lines that seem to gnaw upon all faith and refuse resurrection to the beings who have placelessly perished without a grave. Refused resurrections. How is it that we still refuse to be comforted for those who we nevertheless maintain are dwelling in unspeakable bliss. Why all the living so strive to hush all the dead? Wherefore, by the rumor of a, of a knocking in a tomb will terrify a whole city. All these things are not without their meanings. The meanings is that they are refusing resurrections. This is a crowd of Christians sitting there staring at those... At those uh, Cenotaphs, refusing resurrections, isolated. Paul says, you have now been incorporated into a new covenant. And it is not a covenant of words written in stone. The, word, the letters written in stone, the words written in stone, uh, kill. The letter kills. Only the Spirit redeems or liberates or frees. And this is it. These are people who are dead to the, to the dead letter. They, this, is a, this is a picture of, of Christian paralysis occasioned by the inability to read the text with inspiration. And the text is there, but the reading of it is, has lost its depth. And so the, they are... That's what the word literalist means, somebody who, who is so caught in the literal implication of it that they cannot see the deeper meaning. And so they have been caught in that, the letter that kills. They also provide the, a, a, a triptych to parallel the triptych in the spouter in. They're all, but they're all versions of the same thing, refusing resurrection. That's what's going on in the, in the chapel is there's a great conspiracy going on to refuse resurrection and to get stuck in the literal words. And so, and this is, well, this, anyway. Um, shaking off the sleep from my ice-glazed hat and jacket, I seated myself near the door and turning sideways was surprised to see Queequeg near me. Affected by the solemnity, now look at Queequeg. Look in his eyes. Just imagine his eyes. Affected by the solemnity of the scene, there was a wonderful gaze of incredulous curiosity in his countenance. See? He's alive. This savage was the only person present who seemed to notice my entrance because he was the only one who could not read. <laughs> and therefore was not reading those frigid inscriptions on the wall. See? He is free from that that paralysis that has to do with the text. And so he was alive. He was curious. He was touched by the obvious solemnity of it. But he was in a state of wonder. And he turns around and relates to his fellow humans, right? Because he could not read. Father Maple comes in climbs onto the pulpit, which is shaped like a, uh, the bow of a ship. I was not prepared to see Father Maple after, after gaining the height slowly turn around and stooping over the pulpit deliberately drag up the ladder step by step, a rope ladder like on a ship, till the hole was deposited within, leaving him impregnable in his little Quebec. Can it be taken, excuse me, can it be then that by that act of physical isolation he signifies his spiritual withdrawal for the time from all outward worldly ties and connections. Isolation, further isolation. 
But then he remarks about the pulpit. He says, Its paneled front was in the likeness of a ship's bluff bows, and the Holy Bible rested on the projecting piece of scroll work fashioned after a ship's fiddle-headed beak. What could be more full of meaning? Yes, the world's a ship on its passage out, and not a voyage complete, and the pulpit is its prow. Now, things have changed a good deal. He spends the night, one night with Queequeg and wakes up with the, somebody embracing him, and he realizes not that the universe is complete, but that the world's a ship on the passage out and not a voyage complete. And the pulpit is its prow. So this is not a rejection of the text. It is simply the rejection of the... of a paralysis at the level of the text. And then we get the sermon, chapter 9, the sermon. And it's a, it's a homily on the text that God had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It's a, it's a retelling of the Jonah story, uh, richly uh, commingled with references to the whaling trade, which all these people were engaged in one way or another. And he begins by saying, Shipmates, it is a two-stranded lesson, a lesson to us all as sinful men and a lesson to me as a pilot of the living God. And I won't go into the various lessons, I mean the various details of lesson one, but he sums it up at the end. Lesson one is, Sin not, but if you do, take heed to repent of it like Jonah. Okay, that's good. That's pretty good. The book of Jonah has four chapters. The first two could be summarized. It's not a terribly imaginative uh, summary, but it could be summarized by saying, Sin not, but if you do, take heed to repent of it like Jonah. That's fine. Now, what's lesson two? This, shipmates, is that other lesson. And woe to that pilot of the living God who slights it. Woe to him whom this world charms from gospel duty. Woe to him who seeks to pour oil upon the waters when God has brewed them into a gale. Woe to him who seeks to please rather than to appall. Woe to him whose good name is more to him than goodness. Woe to him who in this world courts not dishonor. Woe to him who would not be who would not be true even though to be false were salvation. Yea, woe to him who, as the great as the great pilot Paul has it, while preaching to others, is himself a castaway. And that, that's that's lesson number two, of the book of Jonah. Nothing could be further from the truth. The book of Jonah was written, really, after the great prophetic age had passed, but it was written as a commentary on a, a uh, rigor mortis of its day. Namely, the prophetic movement had ceased to be uh, alive and had become a bunch of misanthropic ranters and ravers and had lost... They had so accommodated themselves to a God of wrath that they could not accommodate themselves to a God of mercy. And so the book of Jonah is written, the last two chapters of the book of Jonah, Jonah goes to Nineveh finally and he preaches, you know, uh, fire and brimstone to the Ninevites and they repent. And God says, well, let's let bygones be bygones. And Jonah says, what do you mean? <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, Jonah said he didn't like it. And the whole point of the book of Jonah is that Jonah couldn't accommodate himself to, to a God who has changed, changed from wrath to mercy. And another commentary on Christianity of Melville's time, not strictly of Melville's time, but there you have it. So this is the bankruptcy of American Puritanism, and it says at the end, he said no more, but slowly waving a benediction, covered his face in his hands, and so remained kneeling till all the people had departed, and he was left alone in the place, and I might add, refusing resurrection. The, the refusing to accommodate to a God that has turned, has changed his mind to an unpredictable God who is now merciful. And the inability, not that this is a bad man, 
but the inability of the whole institutional church at that moment to move into that other more liberating sense of, uh, you know, of, of what it is. I, I, when we were doing the Gospel of Matthew here, I, one of the uh, one of the prominent uh, exegetes who did a study of the Gospel of Matthew said it, it, you have to start by realizing that in our day the best English translation translation for the word gospel is freedom, and uh, you know this is a 19th century Puritanism unable to come to grips with that. Okay, so that's the interlude. The interlude is at the chapel, and uh, now we return to the to the Spouter Inn for chapter 10 called A Bosom Friend. I want to read these passages in there. I found Queequeg there quite alone, he having left the chapel before the benediction sometime. <laughs> part of Part of maintaining this great sense of awe and curiosity and wonder was that he saw what was coming down there. He decided, he decided he'd go back and sit by the fire. Anyway, uh, he was sitting on a bench before the fire with his feet on the stone hearth, and in one hand he was holding close up to his face that little Negro idol of his, peering hard into its face, and with a jackknife gently whittling away at its nose, meanwhile humming to himself in his heathenish way. But being now interrupted, he put up... This is the fun, funniest passage in the book. He, being now interrupted, he put up the image and pretty soon, going to the table, took up a large book there and placing it on his lap, began counting the pages with deliberate regularity. At every 50th page, as I fancied, stopping a moment, looking vacantly around and giving utterance to a long-drawn, gurgling whistle of astonishment. He, said. he would then begin again at the next 50, seeming to commence at a number at number one each time as though he could not count more than 50, and it was only by such a large number of 50s being found together that his astonishment at the multitude of pages was excited. Now, this is, this is just wonderful. We just left the chapel where the paralysis of the text has set in. And there is refusal of resurrections and deadness and all the rest of it. Over and over in this text, we have this uh, this tension between the Christians and the pagan idol worshiper. The Queequeg is a pagan idol worshiper. Okay. Well, the question is, who is worshiping the graven image? In the chapel, they sit isolated, staring blankly at these words written in marble or words on stone. Queequeg has his idol, but guess what? He's carving it. It's still in process. It is still being articulated. It is still being given shape. He is continuing to interpret it. But what a marvelous image to compare. He, they think of him as an idol worshiper. But his God is still sh taking shape. Still. And then he puts that down and picks up the text. This is so wonderful. And that, that whistle of astonishment. He's saying, boy, would you look at this. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that it's at every 50th page that he whistles. Pentecost means 50. And Pentecost is the time, it's, a, it's an echo of the, the Old Testament idea of the Jubilee year. Jubilee year happened on the 50th year. It's the time at which, uh, Pentecost in the Christian tradition is the time at which the, the mystery of the text or the message of the text incarnates and comes alive with the Spirit. It's the, it's the dawn of the Spirit, the breakthrough of the Spirit into things. And the Spirit is always breath. And if you pucker your lips right, breath will come out. So every 50th page, he let a little Spirit come out in a song. And he said, wow. And this is not happening at the chapel. This is precisely what is not happening at the chapel. Well, isolation of the Christian community is not overcome by some shallow and uh, affected 
groupiness. So Ishmael says, Queequeg never consorted at all or but very little with the other seamen in the inn. Now, hearken back to standing on the threshold of the spatter inn and scraping the ice off his feet and all that stuff about his eyes being glazed on both sides with frost and that whole question of coming up out of the infernal ice. And now it is, I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. That's what Ishmael has always boasted. That's his pattern. This soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifference speaking a nature in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies and bland deceits, I'll try a pagan, friend, thought I, since Christian kindness has proven but, but hallow courtesy. And then, of what does the friendship consist? Well, it has to do with the text and the sacrament and sharing. It really has to do with sharing everything. We then turned over the book together, and I endeavored to explain to him the purpose of the printing and the meaning of the few pictures that were in it. Now, Queequeg, this is not some Rousseau-esque idea of the noble savage. Queequeg is really a, an, uh, an undergraduate. It's not, it's, he does have, there are things he doesn't know. Uh, he has great nobility of character, but there is a process going on here between these two, see? And they take the text together and they begin to work with it. And then there's a kind of a sacrament. Soon I proposed a social smoke. And producing his pouch and tomahawk, he quietly offered me a puff. When our smoke was over, he pressed his forehead against mine, clasped me around the waist, and said that henceforth we were married, meaning in his country's phrase that we were bosom friends, he would gladly die for me if need should be. And then there is this wonderful sharing that takes place. He made me a present of his embalmed head, took out his enormous tobacco wallet and groping under the tobacco, drew out some $30 in silver, then spreading them on the table and mechanically dividing them into two equal portions, pushed one of them towards me and said it was mine. He then went about his evening prayer. Now this is one of those things that's available for what I call the grand interpretation. Paul Ricoeur said, Enigma does not block understanding, it provokes it. Queequeg took out of his pouch 30 pieces of silver and threw them on the table and divided them. Ishmael said Queequeg had redeemed him. Redeemed, the word redeemed means to buy back. And uh, it was the 30 pieces of silver that were paid for the informant at the crucifixion. To me, it, it shimmers with that sense of all the Ishmaelites being invited back in. It has something to do with that. It has to do with, uh, with redeeming the unredeemed, bringing them all back in again. I'm not, I don't, I, I, I dare not even go further into it. It just sits there as this beautiful image. He took out 30 pieces of silver and threw them on the table and divided them up and said, half of it was mine. And Ishmael wonders, well, should I worship this idol of his or not? And he said, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. It looks like it doesn't matter. So they worshiped together, the idol. We worshiped together and went to bed. There was no place, there is no place like a bed for Confidential disclosures between friends. Man and wife, they say, merely a metaphor. Man and wife, they say, there open the very bottom of their souls to each other, and thus then, in our heart's honeymoon, lay I and Queequeg, a cozy, loving pair. And then he mentions Queequeg had, had a great desire to learn from Christians. He put his life in peril to get on board this ship that would take him to Christendom where he could learn from the Christians. But he spent a while with these Christian sailors and he says, poor Queequeg gave it up for lost. Thought he, it's a wicked world in all meridians, I'll die a pagan. 
and thus the old idolater at heart, he yet lived among these Christians, wore their clothes, and tried to talk their gibberish. I love them. Quiqueg, but then he says, he says, Quiqueg says, the wicked world and all Meridians, I'll die a pagan. But on board a Christian ship, he finds he, he, he finds a need to to uh, display his wrath with regard to one of these sailors, pick him up and throw him down again. Then the sailor falls in the sea, and Quiqueg has to rescue him. He rescues him. He comes up. He's he's wet, rest, leaning against the the side of the ship, resting. And it says, mildly eyeing those around him, seemed to be saying to himself. It's a mutual joint stock world in all meridians. We cannibals must help these Christians.